did you say we're recording from Minnesota Public Radio? Okay. I was focused on the head and not the face. <laughs> Beautiful. That might be the point. Yeah. <laughs> be incognito. Right. What is... Oh, were you there? Oh, so she's at the games. She's at the World Cup games. Oh, which one? Is she a lawyer? Oh, so she's doing like a internship. Oh, fabulous. Durban is... Yes. Fabulous. He's wonderful. But she's not coming to Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. Well, I should give you my number. If she's got Albie's number, she's fine. But I'll give you mine, too, because we're, we're a base camp for roving American girls and boys. <laughs> Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon to everyone, and welcome. I'm very pleased to be able to welcome everybody here to another in our series at the Aspen Ideas Festival focusing both on race in America and also on women and girls in America. Um, my name is Ann Kubish. I'm the director of one of the policy programs of the Aspen Institute. I direct a policy program called the Roundtable on Community Change. We focus on uh, what we're learning about how to revitalize distressed communities in the United States. 
In that context, we do a lot of work on race and racial equity. We do a seminar series on racial equity in society. We do a lot of publications. You'll see some of ours around here focusing on structural racism and how the structures of society reproduce racial inequities in America. So I'm here to introduce two people who don't need any introduction. I'm very proud to be able to be here with Anna DeVere Smith and Charlene Hunter-Galt, two real pioneers and heroes, I'm sure, of everybody in this room. So I'm just going to turn it directly over to Anna DeVere Smith, who will do the introduction of our, of our speaker. I just want to say that we are recording this not only for the Aspen Institute, but also for Minnesota Public Radio, so that when we get to the question and answer time, we'd be really grateful if you'd step up to the, to the microphone and ask your question directly into the microphone. So welcome, and I'm going to turn it over to Anna DeVere Smith. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, can can everybody hear me? I'm not sure this is on. It's on. Huh? Doesn't sound like it. But just if you can't hear, just you can just call out. Can't hear you the way my mother used to uh, in the back of church or school plays. Um, Welcome to One Woman's Journey to Civil Rights. And uh, as I said earlier today in another panel, I'm so pleased that the Aspen Institute has decided to put in its circle of ideas, ideas about race with this year's racetrack. And especially since our group is intimate, I'm hoping that we can think about this hour together really as a kind of a workshop so that it's not just about one woman's journey to civil rights, but to take the lessons that we can learn from Charlene Hunter-Galt as an exemplary in race right now, and also where we are in social change right now. Uh, in this environment where ideas are rich, where ideas are sometimes, as what uh, Walter Isaacson said, magical, that we can think about how to use the lessons that we learn from her courage and, and the, her active imagination, how we can put that to work about other things that, we, that concern us, race, poverty, even the environment. Um, because indeed, Charlene Hunter-Galt came through a remarkable moment in America's history. In the course of Charlene Hunter-Galt's journey from Due West, South Carolina, to Johannesburg, South Africa, where she now lives sometimes, she has been blessed with the insight to know her place. At times in her life, especially in 1960-61, when she integrated the University of Georgia, other people told her where her place was, and she had the wisdom not to listen. In her autobiography, Charlene Hunter-Galt acknowledges that it would be in my place. Uh, Charlene Hunter-Galt acknowledges that it could have been easier to stay in the place established for her in the pre-civil rights South. She writes at the beginning of the student movement in Atlanta, I quote, we had been protected and privileged within the confines of our segregated communities. But now that we students had removed the protective covering, we could see in a new light both our past and our future. We could see that past, the slavery, the segregation, the deprivation and denial for what it was, a system designed to keep us in our place and convince us somehow that it was our fault as well as our destiny. Now, without either ambivalence or shame, we saw ourselves as heirs to a legacy of struggle, but struggle that was, as Martin Luther King taught, ennobling. Struggle that was enabling us to take control of our destiny. 
We were simply doing what we were born to do. That's from In My Place. Charlene's intelligence, sensitivity, and courage impelled her to seek out a new place for herself in South Africa during and after apartheid. She interviewed Nelson Mandela days after his release from prison in 1990, um, and she has been a preeminent writer on Africa ever since. I hope you saw her uh, current piece on Zuma in The New Yorker. I even joked with her last night. I don't know. She might be ready to come back to the U.S. Anyway, uh, throughout all this, her status as an expert on South African politics has been informed by her role in the civil rights movement in America. I recall... Uh, I interviewed Charlene Hunter-Galt twice for my series On the Road to Search for American Character in which I interview people and invite them to see themselves performed. And in the first interview, she had not yet been to South Africa. And the second interview she had, and she told me about how while she was in South Africa, she started to have stomach and intestinal problems, which reminded her of the intestinal uh, problems that she had when she was... Uh, in school at the University of Georgia. Hunter Galt has written, so a somatic response that, that tells us about how deeply she felt what she did, even as brave as she seemed to be in the University of Georgia. Hunter Galt has written that she sees the continent and the people who inhabit it through the prism of growing up black and female in America during a time of transition, if not transformation in this country. I so appreciate Charlene not only as a historic figure who did something that changed the very conditions of my own life and my lifetime, I also appreciate her as a fantastic cook and host, uh, an astute observer, and maybe most of all, as a compelling writer. Charlene has surely heeded her grandfather's advice to her father, dispensed when her father was 13 and was spending too much time in the streets. Study words, her grandfather said to his son. If you master words, you will walk with kings and queens. And so um, when I first started doing the kind of work that I do in the theater, the first famous person that I had a chance to interview and portray was Charlene Hunter-Galt. And what I remember so much from that performance where I was terrified, I'm not going to do you for them, although I, I, I kind of know it by heart, but I won't. Um, I'll spare her. Uh, but I am going to tell them that. So, uh, I, you know, there was so much about her that impressed me um, in the interview uh, and then and then I invited her to see herself perform, and she came with both her husbands. Her first husband, a white man, Walter Stovall, and her current husband, Ron Galt, Galt a, an African-American man. And I was really jealous as a single woman that <laughs> she had both her husbands <laughs> sitting on either side. So, Charlene, um, actually, I thought that I'd love us to start today with, uh, there's so many um, scenes from, from, from your past and, and even now, uh, and you're such a great storyteller, but I wanted you to just tell us the story of your first night in the dorm at the University of Georgia, of what happened. Wow. Well, this is what happens when you are on the stage with somebody who's known you for a very long time. They just out you. <laughs> So first, let me, before I respond, thank you for that amazing introduction. Somewhat embarrassing, but still amazing. And thank you all for coming. I expected to see five people in this room, so thank you for being here. First night in the dorm, uh, 
I was very excited about having finally reached this destination because it had taken a long time. We'd gone through the courts and exhausted what they call our administrative remedies. And finally, when we started to register, um, Judge, me and Hamilton Holmes, Holmes, uh, my colleague from high school, uh, Judge Ginsburg, you'll appreciate this. The judge who ordered us in as we were registering, for some reason we've never been able to fathom, granted the state a stay of the order. So right in the middle of our registering after having been ordered in, he granted this stay. And our lawyers, uh, who were in Atlanta, we were in Athens, 73 miles away from Atlanta, went straight to the Fifth Circuit, I guess it was, and got within a couple of hours, uh, the stay overturned. Now, the judge who had ordered us into the university was named William Boodle. The judge who, and he granted the stay. The judge who overturned the stay and said we had to continue to register uh, was named uh, Herbert Tuttle. So the headline, you must, Albert Tuttle. So the next day, the headline in the newspaper was Tuttle Boots Boodle. (laughs) (laughs) So we got a kick out of that. And uh, the University of Georgia being Southern um, required that the women, the girls, uh, stay on campus. The guys didn't have to. So Hamilton stayed with a family in town, the town of Athens, a black family who owned the restaurant. And I was on campus. And the students, um, you know, I never have really known how many students actually were opposed to us being there. But there was a critical mass that came and demonstrated outside of my dormitory that evening. And they shouted all sorts of things. We're not allowed to say the N-word anymore, but they were shouting, kill the nigger. I didn't say that, but that's what they said. Actually, I don't think that we should rewrite history, actually. You know, there was a big debate at the university a few years ago about whether that should go on the plaque that they put in my dormitory. And I took the position that it should. A lot of the young black students felt that it shouldn't. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's what they were shouting. And they had put me in a room. The university did everything it could to prevent maximum integration, or should I say desegregation. So rather than put me on the second floor where all the other girls uh, lived, they put me uh, at the end of, let's say the length of this room was the receiving uh, space of the dormitory, the lobby. And on this side was a room, two rooms where the uh, Student Government Association met. And at the other end was the house mother. And in the middle were sofas and things for the girls to receive company. And uh, they put the women from the Student Government Association somewhere else, and they put me in that isolated room on the other end. Now, what was interesting about that was that when finally, uh, I'll tell you why, it took a while for them to get there, a few days, but when they finally did get there, the girls came down, they were all curious, and they were so upset, they were complaining about being discriminated against because they all had to use a common shower upstairs and I had two rooms, a suite. (laughs) I had a kitchenette with a refrigerator and a stove and I had a bathroom with a tub and a shower and 
they came down and they couldn't believe it. And they actually, honest to goodness, did complain about discrimination. <laughs> but that first night, I was over there all by myself. And uh, someone asked me the other day, why did you feel so confident that, because, oh, it was the book I'm writing. And my editor said, I said, you know, I went into my room and I started to unpack my things and, um, despite the fact that they were yelling the things that I just said outside the window of the dorm, I guess it was about as far as from here to uh, the other side of that bench out there to the, to the street where they were. She said, why did you, f I said, I didn't feel afraid. And she asked me, why didn't I feel afraid? And I had to really think about it. I'm not sure. But I think that part of it was home training when I was a little girl, my mother used to send me to visit my grandmother and grandfather in Florida. And my grandfather was the preacher, but my grandmother was the saint. And she insisted that each day I learn a Bible verse. And her favorite 23rd Psalm. 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I feel no evil. And I used to hate those sessions because I wanted to be outside climbing trees. I was a real tomboy. But she prayed every day at 12 o'clock and would find me and make me learn this verse. And I think it was something I internalized. Plus, you, I think you were able to imagine the, even the shadow of death. Weren't you the valley of the shadow Probably, of death? Probably, maybe. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. When you, you do me somewhere. next time, you can include that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so I came from the first room where there was a table and a chair and that, that. And then the second room uh, was uh, the bed, twin, twin beds. And I did not pack my suitcase. Um, and I was very tired because it had been a long day with this stay and everything and all the tension and so forth. So I think I fell asleep very early. The first night wasn't the challenging night. It was the second night when I had gone to class and come back to the room, and it, it, they hadn't even, I had to eat in the room because at that point, again, they hadn't opened up the cafeteria even. They didn't know what to do about where I would eat, and they were arguing that the, cafeteria, the order was to desegregate the university, not the, not the cafeteria. <laughs> and I said to my lawyer, you've got to challenge this. Well, he was representing the Freedom Riders and the sit-in demonstrators and all these other people. He had got me in the University of Georgia, and he was through with me. He said, we'll do that later. I said, okay, fine. No, you're right. So I did the same thing I had done the previous night, and I was sitting at the vanity, and the shouting and the chanting was going on, two, four, six, eight, we don't want to integrate, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And all of a sudden, I mean, this got to be like a mantra that was almost lulling me in there. And all of a sudden, the crash came through my window, and it was a brick. And the brick, I'm such a girl. The brick came in, and I looked at the brick, and without even thinking that this could really be a dangerous moment, I, there was glass all over my clothes. <laughs> and that was what I was thinking about. Oh, my God, look at this. My clothes got glass all over them. And so I'm standing there sort of thinking about this, and I think I wrote this in the book. I said, I guess this was sort of like the eye of the hurricane, where I've never been in one, but I've read about them. And they say at the very eye of the hurricane, it's very still. So in my own mind, I was very still. And then shortly after that, I don't really know what I did between the, other than be appalled at my 
fine clothes were all full of bohemian clothes. Yeah, they were they were cool clothes. This was the sixties, you know. And I had been in school in Detroit, Michigan, and so we all were really cool. And uh, next thing, the dean came in to say that we were being suspended, quote unquote, for our own safety. Now there was a precedent for that. Uh, this had happened with Authorine Lucy in, seven, in 90, 80, uh, 1956 when she applied to the University of Alabama and was ordered in. And they had the same situation where there was a riot. They took her out, quote-unquote, for her own safety. And before her lawyers could react, she reacted in a very critical way of the university in, and verbally, and they used that as, a, as a, a, an excuse to not readmit her. If you feel this way about the university, that, and, and I forget the details of what, but that's what they used, her words. So we hadn't been particularly coached, but we knew about that. So when the dean told us, told me that we were being suspended, I, 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 I was crushed because I thought it was, I couldn't think of anything to do to keep myself there. Meanwhile, uh, the riot was still going on. They say they had called the state police, but they hadn't come. Finally, they came late and, and started dispersing the crowd with tear gas. And they, I was still inside. And uh, I couldn't think of anything. And so we started out. And by this time, all the girls from the second floor had come down and formed a semicircle in that lobby. And I had to pass by them to get outside. And the dean was carrying my books and suitcase. And everything as I walked out got very quiet. And as I passed the girls, one of them, they, oh, they, they had, had sheets, right? They had told the girl, no, they had told the girls to strip their beds because of the tear gas. And if they went back upstairs and got in the beds, they, their eyes might water from the tear gas. So they had had to strip their sheets, or they'd been told to strip their sheets. So as I passed in front of them, all of a sudden, one of them threw out a quarter that landed in front of me, and one of them yelled out, Here, Charlene, here's a quarter, go change my sheets. Um, and so I had the, as it was building up in my mind, there was the brick that had ruined my clothes. There was the, this issue. And then I got outside and saw all these policemen who had come and I started to cry. And a few days later, maybe it was the next day, one of the journalists asked me, what, you must have been so afraid. And I said, no, I wasn't afraid. And they said, no, 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 we saw you crying. And I said, you don't understand. I was crying because I was so pissed off that I couldn't think, I wasn't clever enough to think about how to challenge this thing, you know. And then the next picture that appeared of me was I was holding a Madonna. I was a Catholic at the time. Uh, and I had this Madonna. And I, I, that's when I really remember thinking, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And when we got to Hamp's house, where he was staying, Hamilton's home was called Hamp, Hamp, he had not known about the riot. He, he was only about five minutes away, but there was no, he didn't have on the TV. And so and I had also called my mother and said, don't turn on the, don't turn on the TV like mother, turn on the TV. Uh, because what you're going to see is going to look frightening, but it's not. Of course, she turned on the TV. Um, so when we got to Hamp's place and told him what had happened, by that time the police had arrived and the state patrol had come and they had two cars. 
And Hamilton's father, grandfather had given him a car to get around in, on, around in Athens. And Hamp was so proud of that car that when they told us that we were having to be driven to Atlanta or had to get back to Atlanta because we had to leave Athens after the suspension, Hamp wanted to drive his car. And I said, you can't drive your car. It's too dangerous because those towns, little towns that were full of the Ku Klux Klan and all kinds of strange people, and I didn't even trust the police. But I felt like if we were in the police car, if something happened to us, they would have to answer for it. If something happened to him in his car, he's driving alone, they could say, oh, he ran off the road and blah, blah, blah. And Hemp wasn't having it. He wanted his car. And we, we, <laughs> we were different from the beginning. I mean, we can talk about that later. We were two very different people. We loved one another in so many ways, but we were different. And Hemp always would be, he's, he was very shy and he stuttered. So I was always the one to do the interviews and stuff like that. And he thought that I was kind of silly. And I thought that he was kind of stuffy. And I was a nerd. He he? was no, he wasn't quite a well. Today you might call him a nerd, but but in those days he was just stuffy, and a brilliant kid. And um, I knew that I had to do something dramatic (laughs) to convince him not to drive that car, and I knew that I would have to embarrass him because I couldn't. I couldn't reason with him. I had tried this, and it wasn't working, and they were all ready to go, and it was late. So I just started jumping up and down and screaming, you can't take the car, you can't take the car, you can't. And he's, okay, 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 just, 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 because it was embarrassing to him that I was flailing my arms and carrying on. And as soon as he said, okay, 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 I won't drive, I won't drive, I said, okay. (laughs) And I think he realized that I had had him on. And we got in the car, and they drove us to Atlanta, and my mother met us at the door, and our lawyers were there, and his father was there. And what had made the, I think what had excited the crowd that night more than anything else, as much as anything else, was that they had played a a very intense basketball game with their arch rival, Georgia Tech, Mm. and had lost only a double overtime. Mm -hmm. So that all day long, the students had been passing out uh, uh, notices to to meet or whispering meet at the dorm tonight and we're going to have a demonstration. But when this happened, all of their, uh, what would you call it, all of their uh, adrenaline was up and so those who might not have even come were so upset about the loss to Tech that they all showed up. And um, so that was that. And then the next morning, of course, the judge uh, I guess it, that might have been Boodle again, ordered us back in. And this was, a, this was Wednesday. So our lawyers and everybody thought, well, you know, you've been through a lot, so why don't we just wait until Monday for you to go back? And while we were waiting, uh, there was a news report that a man had showed up at the dorm asking for me, and he was carrying a gun. And I don't know, somehow they found out, they, they told him he couldn't come in the dorm. And la- I think it was later they found out this man had escaped from an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had no protection. I mean, we didn't have, I mean, we, we didn't, they didn't put in state patrol to remain there. And uh, so I don't know how they happened to get this guy out. But anyway, I called my lawyer and I said, have you heard the news? 
And he said, what is that? And I said, this guy has showed up at my dorm with a gun. And he, and he was a very deliberative, wonderful older gentleman. And he said, oh, really? <laughs> um, I said, yes, uh, what are you going to do about it? He said, well, let me look into it. And that was enough for me. That was enough for me. I mean, faith is an amazing thing. You know, it, you, when they say, when the song says faith can conquer mountains, it's absolutely true because I don't think we had anything else. <laughs> you know, when we drove from Atlanta to Athens that morning to register for the first time, it was Vernon Jordan who, I mean, all y'all know Vernon Jordan is a very wealthy, uh, you know, top, top of the heap guy. Vernon was making $35 a week as a young legal assistant with a wife and a child. So it was Vernon, my mother, and me in one car, and Hamp and his father in another car, and that was it. No security. Well, we have um, here with us today the Bezos uh, family, and uh, over the past couple of years here at Aspen, I've had the opportunity to meet with some of the young people who they find from around the world who have amazing acts of courage. And uh, I think this kind of a self-possession that you had and this kind of quiet confidence I see in some of those young people, a young woman uh, who was in the Rwandan genocide was six years old. You saw me portray her at Harvard, uh, lost, having to find her way in the woods alone, uh, she and her sister almost being uh, having their heads cut off, uh, you know, being with a pretending to be Hutus and living with a Hutu family, washing the machetes after they had killed people. So this kind of um, of your ability to have been self-possessed and confident. And then I think about when you told me about your mother and your size ten shoes. Yes. What'd she say when you were complaining about having big feet? Well, I I was the tallest of my friends, the youngest of my friends, and I had the biggest foot. And one day when I'd had to go to town with some friends and I told them what size shoe I wore, size 10, when I was 8 or 9, I wore a 10. And I said, you know, I don't know why my, everybody's complaining and laughing at me because my feet are so big. And she said, don't worry about that. The next time somebody complains about your size 10 shoe, just tell them you're standing on a firm foundation. It was so amazing how, you know, one of the things I said about segregation, and I heard this it's just funny because we don't want to say we want to bring back segregation, but we would. We, we we need to re-examine some of the values that we had in those days that helped us through those trying times. Because, um, you know, when our parents and our teachers and the adults that we dealt with in church couldn't give us first-class citizenship because they didn't have it themselves, what did they do? They gave us a first-class sense of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and you know they they just taught us in ways that I'm not even sure they knew. And yesterday I was listening to Kasim Reed talk about the young people in Atlanta and especially those who are entering the criminal justice system and how he's trying to divert them or how he's trying to reclaim those who've been through the system. And he's talking about bringing back some of those values that are for some reason not being imparted to those young people. And uh, I, I just can, you know, our school, when I was in Covington, Georgia, about 50 miles or so from Atlanta, uh, you know, the textbooks that we had were hand-me-down textbooks from the white school. This was the separate but equal era. And our textbooks often had pages torn out of them. 
And I was just writing about this and remembering the lunch. When we had hot lunch, what it was was a pig ear sandwich from this little stand where the guy used to come and 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 provide for us, um, which was not the most nutritious. I mean, I happen to like pig ears, but th- this was not a nutritious meal for a growing uh, child. But but the way in which they nurtured us, just even though they couldn't at that point change the system, they imparted things in us that enabled us some years later to do what you said. We were born and raised to do that. And I often think of this. Can I tell this story? You can tell any story you want. Um, I tell the story about their unconscious. I'm I'm sure it was instinctive. Um, The black community once a year would have a fundraiser to help make up for the deficits of our separate and unequal elementary school. And everybody in the community would participate. The hairdresser, who was my uncle's girlfriend, and the numbers runner, who was somebody else's boyfriend, and the people, the deacons in the church, they all would pitch in. And this particular night was so exciting because whichever family raised the most money, their child would be crowned either the king or the queen and get a bull of a watch and so forth. So this particular night, I think I was maybe in the fourth grade, uh, I was so excited, and my grandmother and my mother were over in the corner, and they had these little white linen handkerchiefs with all these little pennies and nickels and dimes, and they were over counting and stacking so they could tally up how much they had raised. And then when the totals came in and the principal got up and he said, the family has raised the most money, Mrs. Hunter, and our new queen is Charlene Hunter. And they came over and they gave me this bull of a watch and this diamond tiara. <laughs> And put me up on this throne. And I said, you know, the funny thing about that was that for the next few days, my friends found me totally insufferable <laughs> because I was walking around, you know, I'm, I'm the queen and you have to pay obeisance to me. <laughs> and, you know, then years passed and I forgot about that. And then the day that I walked onto the campus of the University of Georgia and those kids were yelling, nigger, go home. Wow. I said, you know, I was looking around for the nigger. Where, where is the nigger? Wow. I said, because I was wearing my tiara. I knew that I was the queen. And so that kind of thing never even touched me. But you see, the point is this, that they did things to bolster our confidence that probably they didn't even realize Maybe they did. You mean your parents? Oh, the community. The community. You know, Hillary Clinton always talked about it. It's an African proverb. It takes a village to raise a child. Right. And who was it? Was it It was uh, Ogletree yesterday who talked about, or maybe it was Kasim who talked about how when they were growing up, if they misbehaved, anybody in the community could take them on, beat them up, you know, spank them or whatever. And it was a village that raised these children. And everybody was on the same page because everybody was equally discriminated against, although they didn't focus on that aspect of it. They just made our lives the best that they could under the circumstances. But I I wonder if it was also, and I wonder if you see this in South Africa or other parts of Africa, I wonder if it's also, you know, that old um, song, the blood-stained banner of struggle, the integrity in struggle, the dignity in struggle, that we sometimes forget about in a winner-take-all society. And I wonder if, to some extent, the very people who hated you, 
if your enemies, in fact, also gave you a greater sense of confidence and a greater sense of what you were trying to do. They didn't exist. They didn't exist for you? No. They didn't exist. That's what I meant by we were, we were protected within the confines of our segregated communities. Now, of course, we went, when we went downtown, uh, we had to eat before we left. Um, my mother is very fair, and we'd go to Your great-grandfather was white, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we'd, we'd go to shop in the stores, and we'd be standing there looking at something at the counter, and the white uh, um, sales clerk would come over to my mother and say, can I help you? And my mother would say, oh, no, it's my daughter. And, you know, there would be this, well, what do I do now? I didn't, you know. So we, but we rarely ventured out of the community. And within the community, there were the clubs, there were the proms, there were the debutante balls, there were all these things that that helped to make us feel um, first class. Hmm. So they kept us, for the most part, out uh, out of these situations where we could be compromised. I mean, you, of course, we encountered them, uh, but they made up uh, in so many ways. And I and I think that that's been true historically. Hmm. How did people survive the Middle Passage? I mean, many didn't, but many did. Hmm. And they got here, and they uh, kept on. They, they they never succumbed to their circumstances. They kept on fighting. Now, circumstances. last night you remarked on how remarkably, well, it's two remarkables, but you, 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 you spoke last night about how violent. You said, I forgot how violent this country was. And you, you, you talked about the person with, with the eye. Right. That's yeah. such a graphic image. Yeah. It, it, well, I'm writing a, 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 a history of the civil rights movement for young readers and I've written it actually, and I, even I had forgotten a lot of the things, and even some of the things I didn't know about. Because while the movement was going on over here, I was over here trying to get through the University of Georgia. So I would come home on the weekends, and my friends who were involved in the sit-ins and being arrested and so forth would tell me things that had happened. But I didn't know about all of the things that were going on in Birmingham and 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 Selma and all these places unless they were covered in the news. And you know, for a long time, the movement was was invisible in the media and and you know it there came a time when we got more and more of those stories but half the time I was preoccupied with you know getting through human biology uh and not paying a whole lot of attention so some of the things that I encountered in my research for this book were things that today just made my jaws drop like yours did last night and one of them was about uh, these freedom riders and they got to a town and I can't remember now whether it was Birmingham or Anniston, Alabama, but, you know, the Freedom Riders started out from Howard University in two buses. One was the Trailways and one was the Greyhound. And John Lewis was among them and uh, a white guy named John Zweig. And they wrote their wills before they left because they were realistic about what they were going to be facing. And they get to one of these towns and they went to pray or they might have gone to I can't remember now the precise details they were either going to try to register to vote or use one of the restrooms or something but they were attacked by this white mob and one of the white guys and I think it was Jim Swag 
talks about how one of these uh, vigilantes grabbed him and stuck his finger in his eye and pulled the ball of his eye down over his cheek. And he said the only way he salvaged his eye was to twist a little bit in a funny way where the guy lost his grip and he realized he had saved his eye because he heard it go back up in his head. Now, I'm writing this book for young readers, and I'm wondering, do I include this? Is this too traumatic? But these were young people that it was happening to. So I've put all this stuff in there, and I'm waiting for the editor to tell me, but it, it, was, a, it was a violent time, and there's no getting around it. I, 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 you know, every chat, I start in 59 because she wanted me to weave my, my own story thinking that this could help, identif- help the young people identify since they're going to be young readers too. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit younger, but I was a teenager. <laughs> so I started in 59 in high school when I was everybody's everything and so was Hamp and we were very competitive with one another and so forth. And I go from 1959 to 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act because that was a milestone. Uh, in, and it, it, it was probably, in a real sense, the culmination of, of the struggle, or at least that phase of it. And every page, every chapter, I mean, there's one chapter with the kids who got bombed in the church in Birmingham. There's another chapter. I listened to John Lewis talk to Andrew Young just not long ago. Now, John Lewis is now my age. He's in his 60s. And John Lewis was talking about the night, it it may have been when they reconnoitered after the first march across the the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and they were making the plans for the next day, and the church was surrounded by these Ku Klux Klans and people like that. And John is telling the story just like I'm telling the story now. And he says, and you know, it was very dramatic, and he said, you know, we were down in the basement, and Andrew Young, who found archives that the local TV station in Atlanta had donated to the University of Georgia when they switched from film to, uh, uh, not digital, to tape. And some kids just rumbling around the basement found these things, so Andrews used them to make a documentary. So uh, uh, John is telling a story about this night, and they superimposed, they superimposed pictures of them in the basement of the church. You see John sitting next to Martin Luther King, and you see Wyatt Walker, another one there. And all of a sudden, this day, to, in, in, I guess this was 2008 or nine. John's telling the story about this, and all of a sudden he says, and we didn't know whether we were going to get out. And as he's saying alive, he just collapses and starts to weep as a 68-year-old, or, well, I'm telling my age now, but I think we're the same age. Man, I mean, it's that fresh in his memory how terrifying this thing was. And so I'm really torn now because I want these young people to understand when Barack Obama talks about I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, he's not talking about Jack and the Beanstalk. He's talking about John Lewis who, who you know, 50 years later is still terrified when he reflects on that night. And Charlene Hunter-Gall. Well, look, 
Somebody said the other day, my experience was unique. I said, look, it was unique in the sense that we were the first to desegregate an institution of higher learning in the South. But in a real sense, I don't feel that we were unique. And I also don't feel, even though something could have happened to us, we were not, I don't think, as exposed as those kids. You just never felt like you were on the front lines. I, I, in a way, I was. I mean, I didn't sit in down at a lunch counter and have somebody come up and grab me by the hair and drag me to the paddy wagon, as some of these women did. And the women who never have gotten the credit for their role, you know, it's always Diane the Nash. guys. And they should get the credit. Everybody yeah. should get the credit. Right. But the women were the backbone of this movement. Diane Nash was an amazing... When, when, when they arrested John and that bunch in, I guess it was Birmingham, and they, Bull Connor drove them... Was it Bull Connor was in Birmingham? I mean, you know, drove them to the someplace and left drove them out of town when he took them out of jail and left them by uh, uh, the side of a railroad track. They didn't even know where they were. Uh, they called. They found we didn't have any mobile phones. They made their way through the woods, found some house that was brave enough to let them in, and they called Nashville and told Diane what had happened. And Diane said, I'm sitting here, and I've got a bunch of kids Students, she probably said, or like colleagues, 19 years old, 18, 19, 16, 17, 18, 19, who are ready to go. They will leave tonight, and they will take your place. Now, this was, there was no, at this point, there was no mystery about what lay ahead. I mean, they knew because so many people had just had the you-know-what kicked out of them. These people went right in there and took their place. And that was Diane Nash who was at the focal point of this. And there was another one named Ruby Doris Smith. I mean, there were so many women who just never, they just kept on keeping on. You know, it, they didn't, it wasn't about the credit. It was, it was let's get the job done. And all of you have heard Sweet Honey and the Rock. Well, you know, they rock. But Bernice Reagan was on the front lines catching rocks thrown at her and dogs that were unleashed on them. And, and these policemen would say to journalists in those days, yeah, we sick the dogs on them. I wish they had bit them to death. I mean, they were proud of what they were doing. So when we look around today and talk about a post-racial society, first of all, it, you know, that's not, I, I don't agree with it because, you don't heal those kind of wounds even in a half a century. Those wounds, those people who were, who, there are still people like that. They're still alive. They're my age. And, 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 and the, 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 the place for hope in all of this is so many of them have repented. I went back to the University of Georgia for the 40th anniversary and the governor who stood and said, no, not one black student will ever cross the threshold of our state university, apologized. He said, I was wrong. And so many of them have apologized. But so many of them are still out there believing what they always believed because so, few, so many of them got away with murder. 
they were tried and 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 you know there was some brave uh, uh, and, and 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 Republican in those days uh, uh, judges and Democrats who were as bad as the Republicans. Uh, and this was why Kennedy was such a reluctant supporter of the students because uh, they needed the South politically, just like now. And, and so they almost came kicking and screaming into the support of those kids. I mean, the reason they took those white kids from the North for the, that COFO summer, they call it the COFO summer, where they were going to try and register people to vote in Mississippi, it was a calculation. It was a cold calculation that they're not paying any attention to us black kids getting beat to death, but they will sit up and take notice if a white kid gets, and it happened. That's, that's exactly what happened. And it, bro- it, it tore SNCC in parts. Because there was, you know, SNCC was a, a you know, the, all of these, nonviolence was a code, was a creed, was a philosophy of, of them. And, and they practiced this, and they taught them how not to, how, how to protect themselves and go into a protective crawl when they were having the billy clubs and, and, and things and dogs after them. So there was a true uh, nonviolent movement all during this period where you did not fight back. And uh, so the, um, I lost the train of my thought. Um, the, 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 yeah, the, 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 what split SNCC was that there were those who said, we can't do this. We, we can't just sacrifice another human being for publicity. And there were others who were saying, but we need the federal government. We've got to do something dramatic to shake the federal government out of their lethargy. It, 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 I mean, if not something even more extreme, they're, they're, what's another, what's, a, what's an even stronger word? For, not lethargy, they're, they're a complete lack of... Um, hmm? Complacency? They wasn't even complacency. They were against this thing. They didn't want this to be happening. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that, that was partly what did it. That was partly what did it. But there was was this debate within the within the nonviolent community. Do do we dare go there? Mm-hmm. But then the white kids who volunteered to go, they went to train at a, at a university, a women's college in Ohio. And when they began to play act, they did play acting and showed them what was happening on the ground, and it was vicious. And they were also showing them how to protect themselves. And they said, look, you know, you could die. You need to know this. Because that was, the, that was the compromise that they came to. Those who were opposed to having sacrificial white lambs, they said, okay, we'll tell them what they're facing and let them decide. And only a few left, and I think about a 1,000. Some went to, to Washington to talk to the government to say, look, these kids are going down here, and we, want, we would like to have federal protection. They sent the white kids. And then they sent the other others into Mississippi, and uh, that was the summer of Goodman Cheney's runner. They did die, and 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 I mean, you know, for anybody who didn't think this was a realistic possibility, here it was. And while they were looking for Goodman Cheney's runner, they found bodies all over the state of Mississippi of black people who had been murdered and just 
buried somewhere or thrown in the woods or whatever. They turned up bodies of people who never would have, nobody would, we don't even know their names now because they were nothing. They, they didn't even exist as whole human. They were still three-fifths of a person. And so that was an amazing thing. So the st strategy was cold, but it produced the results. And the Kennedys then got on board. They still were opposed to the direct action because it was, you know, that was the year, those were the years of contestation between the Soviet Union and communism and democracy. And we were getting, America was getting really bad press abroad, and the Soviets were making much out of this. I mean, Robert Kennedy came to my college a few months after we desegregated, and he, by that time, he kind of laid down the law, but he did talk about this, how it was important for these Southerners to understand that this was a fight for the very essence of our, of our democratic principles. And then he said something that just blew me away. I, I mean, I was, you know, they were still not liking us being there, but they weren't very, you know, visibly uh, re rejectionist and um, rejecting us. And uh, all of a sudden, it was Bobby Kennedy, and everybody was in there listening to what he had to say. And he talked about this contest between the Soviets and the United States. And then he said, and I'm just sitting there listening to this speech and thinking, oh, this is interesting. And he's, I said, I'm and, and wondering if he had any idea that we were there. And, you know, I mean, I, I, there were times when, I mean, we were internationally famous, but it, there were times when I didn't even, I, I, I didn't process that. So I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder if he, you know, I wonder if I could get to meet Bobby Kennedy. I wonder if he even knows that we're here. And all of a sudden I heard Bobby Kennedy say, the graduation from this University of Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes will be a major step victory or something like that in the fight against communism and something else. <laughs> and I thought, ooh. <laughs> Did he just say that? <laughs> I want to give people a chance to ask you some questions in the spirit of uh, awareness of, you said that, that to get the job done, and I'm sure some of us believe that the job is not completely done yet. And so uh, if, if you'd like to go to the mic and ask some questions or make some comments, that'd be fantastic. Okay. Do you, can I just say, I come to a lot of these events, I never speak, but one of my favorite quotes is Chinua Achebe said to Bill Moyers, uh, survival has no meaning without the memory of suffering, and what you're doing, write the bad words, write the whole stories, because people need to know. And it really, I mean, I'm so moved by your talk, I never speak at these events, but thank you so much. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Say your name, sure. would you? Sure, Nisha Patel. And, um, oh, can you hear me? Uh, my question really is, you know, I, I had the opportunity at the end of last year to spend some time in South Africa. And I was really, um, only in Joburg for the night in Cape Town and the Winelands and then mm -hmm. Safari. So it was a vacation. But I did get a chance um, to see some of the townships in Cape Town and some of the different neighborhoods. And so it's clear to me that there is still segregation there. But as someone who's lived in, both, both in the U.S. and there. I'm wondering what reflections you might have on what we might be able to learn from the progress that's happened politically in South Africa. Because one of the things I, that, uh, at least that I was reflecting on, was that you know we've come a lot a long way in the last half century in the U.S. in terms of race and segregation, but we still have a long way to go. As does South Africa. But it seems like they've been able to. This was just my one woman's impression. 
leapfrog ahead faster. And, and, and the place that I feel like I noticed it was, um, you know, while there's still segregation in the neighborhoods, it, it seemed to me in the media, on television, in the billboards, much more than I've seen spending most of my life growing up in the U.S., a representation of who the country is and what it looks like that I don't necessarily see here in the U.S., if that makes any sense. So I'm speaking specifically about race and ethnicity mm. and seeing images of people that are reflective of who the population is. That I think we haven't quite gotten there in the U.S. Well, I think we're there in the U.S. I mean, we're sort of going backwards in some er- some respects, but... Um, you know, like you don't see an Ed Bradley who brought me here to Aspen for the first time. There's nobody of his stature on television today. Well, Gwen Eiffel, but I'm talking about in commercial television. So in some respects, South Africa has um, moved very quickly to have at least surface representations of the majority community um, on television uh, and, uh, uh, you know, as you say, in the billboards. But you know um and and there was a the government put in place what they called uh we we would call it affirmative action they call it black economic empowerment um but i i i i i don't want to disabuse you of the notion that things have moved forward faster uh but I think that there is such an enormous challenge. If you saw the townships, none of them have been obliterated. They put in the first wave of no uh in in uh, yeah that's true, but in the nineties after the democratic elections uh the government built what they call r d p houses for poor people that took the place of some of the shacks and shanties, but they were so shabbily built that most of them are falling apart. Um, They are now trying to uh, replace those with some better housing. But, you know, it's very hard to compare the two. I mean, in in one respect, it was color, race, that was the uh, critical variable in the the equation. Um, But you have a different situation altogether in South Africa where you have a black majority uh, as opposed to here. So it's almost inevitable that even if you do a minimal amount, you're going to see more black people and Indian people and, tell, and colored people in, 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 the, in the popular representations than you have um, here. Uh, it did take a long time here. I mean, you know, it was the riots of 68 that, and the Kerner Commission report that led to uh, media uh, being blamed in part for uh, those riots by not paying attention to the um, simmering discontent within the black community. So it took a long time, and and South Africa has moved a little bit forward faster. But uh, there are still major hurdles because the vast majority of South Africans who are black and are poor and are uneducated and the education that the majority of the black people are getting in the country today is not going to prepare them for productive uh, uh, lives and work in a in a in a in a, in a society that 
that is economically advanced and technologically advanced. So that's one of the biggest challenges, that, and that's why I'm so upset. Well, I'm not upset. I'm happy that I have the piece in The New Yorker. But I wrote 12,000 words, and we had to winnow it down to 5,000. But that was one of the things that I talked about, because I think that that's the biggest challenge that the country has. I mean, they have good service delivery problems, which are causing protests in the streets and all that. But who's protesting? It's these young people who don't have any jobs and no hope of a future. And uh, so, you know, why not get out there and throw some rocks and do some things, at least get some electricity and water and, and sewer pipes uh, in the communities? But, you know, and the other thing the New Yorker doesn't like is cliches, but there's a cliche that really is a true fact. <laughs> if I can be redundant and not have an editor say, you can't say true fact and you can't say use cliches. <laughs> um, but uh, it, those kids are a ticking time bomb. Mm -hmm. And what I tried to say last night, you know, we had this panel on how the uh, rest of the world looks at U.S. foreign uh, policy. And, you know, I didn't get to say a whole lot because people are preoccupied with Afghanistan and Pakistan and that whole thing, as they should be. But we have a serious national, national interest in seeing to it that South Africa succeeds mm -hmm. and that the continent Succeeds. succeeds that the continent succeeds. South Africa is the economic driver of the continent, but that it all succeeds because what what what, what is the um, where do you have the most uh, greatest potential for terrorist recruits in these poor communities where kids don't have any options? And right there where you were in Durban are Al-Qaeda cells, I can tell you that. So now, don't quote me on that. Don't put this on the radio. Well, we're on. <laughs> so it's, it's, so already it's not on just radio. A, a matter, it's not just a matter of compassion. Or, no, or it's, 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 no, don't be, compa don't so be compassionate. Compassion fatigue. Be compassionate if you want to, but that runs out. Yeah. Be practical. Yeah. Be smart. Understand what your national interests are. Now, we talked about the Middle East last night, which continue... I, there was a point when I left South Africa in 90, and no, it was, before, it was 85, 80, 85, when it was the darkest, and a friend of mine used to say it's always darkest just before it gets pitch black. <laughs> well, w w at that point, everybody thought South Africa was headed for the abyss, and of course, in the Middle East, there was also a lot of volatility and intentions. And, and at, I remember saying, I wonder which of the, I had hope that, that they would ultimately, and I still do get resolved, but I said, I wonder whether it's going to be South Africa or, you know, the Arab-Israeli thing first, because they were both so seriously volatile. And, and then South Africa uh, happened. Um, but the Middle East, I mean, you got still tensions in South Africa, but nothing that's going to explode like they once thought it would, like civil war or something like that. Middle East, you don't know what's going to happen. And as long as we're an oil-dependent country, we've got to have some alternative to Middle East oil. And right now it's Nigeria, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, Angola, it's uh, newly, newly discovered oil uh, in uh, uh, Ghana, although we don't know how much uh, there is. But there are, and the other two things, and I'll say this very quickly, um, there's a terrorism issue. There is the issue of, uh, of uh, uh, disease 
Disease doesn't know any borders. It, it just flies across. It's just killing civil just servants. Goes. And, it, and, and also, you know, all kinds of diseases that trans that go across borders. They don't take tickets on airplanes. They just wow. fly through mm -hmm. and go. And 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 so you have those two critical uh, variables, and then there are other ones too that that bind us. You know, your computers, your computers wouldn't work without the coal tan from the Congo. All these mineral resources and things that you know we all think came out of you know de developed societies, those come out of Africa. So it's not, let's be nice about Africa because those nice people deserve to have our compassion. That's fine, have compassion. But be practical also and understand because that's going to motivate you more. Your self-interest. Self-interest than compassion. That's, yes, sir, you had a question? Tell, tell us who you are. Uh, K.R. Sridhar. So during the sorry, very... K.R. Sridhar. Okay. During the very difficult times and crisis, what I heard from you, what I took away, was the message of hope as opposed to the message of despair. And that really is what kept you going. Mm -hmm. We're looking at crises today, and a majority of what we hear is the voice of despair about why our country cannot be what it was, why the future generations cannot be what it is. Is there something to be learned from those previous well, I, I just crises. want to interject one really quick thing here, which is that we so often in America, here at least, jump to this wish for hope. Yeah. But real hope requires an aptitude for struggle. So I wouldn't want, I, I want to I uh, encourage you to hear the amount of struggle in the story that Charlene Hunter Gold told us. I, I, you know, it's your interview, but we so often. It's often yours, we, we so, so go right ahead. Often, <laughs> we so often jump to hope. So I, I want to interject that as you answer that question. But I think that's fine. I mean, I think that both of you are right. Uh, because we had the hope and the faith that we were going to overcome. And, and that's what kept us on the path. You know that song, Stony the Road We Tried, Bit of the Chastening Rod? You know, the, the felt in the hope when days of, what is it? Faith, uh, lift every voice and sing. You know, they, they took hope. They always had hope. But, you know, there can be, as Frederick Douglass said, no progress without struggle. And I think the thing that made me, confident about these difficult times. I mean, they weren't quite as difficult during the campaign, but you did see a rejuvenation of activism among youth, among young people. And I'm when talking about the Obama I'm campaign. Talking about the, I'm talking about the political campaign in which Obama was a player. Yeah. But there were lots of players. Right. And I went around the country to various college campuses on speaking tours, and, and, you know, you had kids on all sides, but they were out there. And, I, and, and I, I, no matter what I was called there to talk about, I talked about how elevating it was for me and inspiring to see a generation unlike any I've seen since the Civil Rights Movement hit the streets with some idealism and hope. So I think you're both right. But I think that one of the reasons that's, that's driving me to finish this book uh, on the civil rights movement is um, to show 
that there can be no progress without struggle. Now, hopefully, that's we all use that word so wrong. I'm sorry to have done that. So um, that was that's don't use it like that. It's wrong, but it's entered the lexicon that way now. So I'll go to it. Hopefully, <laughs> we would hope that Mastery, study words. Study words, my grand. And you know, I'm so sick of some of these words I hear today in the lexicon. Done. I know everybody in here says, are you done yet? I'm not in the oven. I'm not done. I'm finished. Anyway, back to my point. I'm sorry to go off on that, uh, that uh, track. But I, I, I just want to show that um, you, you have to stay hopeful. I mean, Martin Luther King said, I bit, my book is called To the Mountaintop. Unless they change it, they'll do that over my dead body. But um, he said, I've been to the mountaintop. I may not be there with you when you get there, but you will get there. So hope drove that. Hope that we would see better days. So what we have to do now, it seems to me, in this country is, I don't know where the kids went. They went back to the books. We got to get them back out. I didn't see them during the health care debate. I haven't seen them in some of these recent mm -hmm. issues. And I know it's important to study, but when I was at the University of Georgia, I was flying somewhere every weekend to give a speech. That's how I met Lena Horne. I wrote a piece about her when she died recently because somebody took me to meet her as a, as a treat for me, and it was just so inspiring. But I did that while also studying. So, you know, and the students are so bright today, so much brighter than, I mean, Hamp finished Phi Beta Kappa, I finished. Uh, and and Why did and you and Hamp ever get together? <laughs> you are such a troublemaker. <laughs> you know, we we would have killed one another. <laughs> I mean, we were just his grandfather promised me all any car I wanted if I could get together with his grandson. But we were just two different people. Although I just adored him. He died uh, much too early. He died when he was fifty-four years old. And I had successful to orthopedic surgeon. Successful. He was the first black student at Emory University Medical School and was very successful. But I think, you know, you talk about my stomach problems because um, everybody used to write about how cool I was, but I was in the infirmary once a month. I didn't relate it to the stress, but I think I got it right now. I think it was the stress of this New Yorker piece. But, I but you see, that, that stomach problem reminds me of John Lewis crying. Yeah is that these traumas that happen mm -hmm. make their mark. Yeah. And even if we don't remember, the body remembers. The body remembers. So you have to figure out, you have to meditate, or you, ha you have to have friends. You know, one of the things that helped me, and again, I go back to that unique thing that the guy said the other day, I said it wasn't unique. I mean, all my friends were doing it. Everybody was involved in the movement. So I had people I could talk to about what I was going through. My friends were in jail all the time. And then I started working on a newspaper that we started because the white newspapers weren't covering the movement adequately. And my friends would go demonstrate in the morning, get arrested by lunchtime, be bailed out by late afternoon, and come, come to this basement where we were working, put out the paper, and tell me their stories. And we shared this thing. See, So... Um, you need people that, you, you know, it's, you, if you meditate, that's great. I'm a loner, so I, I was much better to have been in this situation than in 
the sit-ins, although I wanted to be in the sit-ins, but the lawyer said, no, that's all they need is for you to go to jail. And then they'll say, we can't have a jailbird at our university. I wanted to do that. But I was a good person to do what I did because I don't mind being alone. And, and there were days when I was at the university, I would go and I would come back to my room and I would realize that for the last three days I had not uttered a human sound. Nobody had spoken to me. I hadn't spoken to anybody. And I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, hey, queen. <laughs> Charlene, I have one last little question for you. I think we're at our end. Um, but uh, from, to, as another hopeaholic, uh, self-claimed hopeaholic, uh, Gloria Steinem, I recently heard her say that the most dangerous moment for a woman uh, who has been abused is the moment right before she's free. Hmm. And she said, we're living in very dangerous times, and so it means to me that we're almost ready to be free. And I, I wonder how you think about how we will move through the precarious moment that we're in. This gentleman talked about, you know, the despair, the doom. Mm -hmm. how, how will we move through this one? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you just have to keep on keeping on. You have to believe in something. And, and you know, um, the other thing is that if you step back, sure, we have challenges here, but we still are the most privileged bunch of people in the world. And, again, I think that our hope is in keeping our young people engaged and involved and committed to something and supporting them. And I just end with this, this little story because I don't really know how to answer your question, so I'm basically filibustering. Um, but because but, that's a really tough question. Uh, but I, I was so impressed with Hakeem uh, Reed. Uh, am I right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kasim Reed. I have a friend named Hakeem, too, but Kasim, Hakeem, Kasim. Kasim told this one story, and I, I guess part of the reason I'm so proud of him is because he's the mayor of Atlanta. And I knew him when he was a 19 year old student at Howard protesting, and I quoted him, and he remembered it. He told me the other day. Uh, Kasim said that he uh, got a call from Andy Young when he was running for mayor, and Andy told him, Here's my phone number. Here's my, you, you heard the story. Here's my personal number. Anytime, I don't care what time of day or night it is that you ha think you're about to have a crisis or need somebody to talk to, call me. Now, this thing, I, I keep going back to this thing that Obama said in Selma. And I think he may have even said it, I don't think he said it at the inauguration but standing on the shoulders of giants. You see, I was in New York not long ago, and I had a Nigerian cab driver. And when I said, well, he didn't look at me when I got in the cab. And when I said, I want to go such and such a place, he turned and says, NPR, I recognize that voice. He said, <laughs> and you know, the, the foreign uh, cab, people listen more to NPR than domestic folks. You know, they know more about the world. Than so he said, then he said, and this is why I'm telling this story, he said, it's so nice to see somebody your age still out there. <laughs> now, this is what I, and I loved that. 
I tell people all the time, you know, live, I'm so happy to be this age in Africa because I'm honored as an elder. I'm respected as an elder, finally, uh, <laughs> for something. But we all have a role to play. Those of us who are the older generation owe it to the younger generation, even as they take the torch and move forward like Obama has done, we have to be there for them because they're gonna reach some difficult days. And we've got to be there to tell them that this is the bridge you can cross and I'll be waiting to grab your hand to help you across. I'm happy to have an activist younger generation, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm gonna be out there. My husband is so upset that I am out here because <laughs> I was supposed to be at the doctor's. And I said, no, I have to go because this is important to me. I need to meet people. It's Zora Neale Hurston, that's my motto. She had been getting ready for her great journey to the horizons. And it was important for all the world that she should meet people and they should meet her. That's, that's Zora Neale Hurston's protagonist, Janie. And I have internalized that. So whether I make a big difference in the world or not, I'm going to be out there. And I think there are a few little things that I have learned along the way that I would like to be able to share if there's somebody who wants to have it or needs to have it. And then you find somebody else, you young people, who can help you through these times that, that, that get difficult. But find something that you believe in and then don't. I told my son once we were losing a tennis match, a doubles match, and his shoulders had slumped and we were going to lose even worse. And I went to him and I said, yo, don't get down even if you're all the way down. And he's an actor in Hollywood and he's down a lot. But he just sent this around to his friends all of whom are struggling out there in Hollywood. He said, as my mother told me when I was about nine years old, and this is what keeps me going, don't get down even when you're all the way down. So that's what I have to say to you Thank guys. Nobody turn around. 